Good morning and assalamu alaikum my dears. So welcome to another session of Open Course Applied Language Skills. So today I thought we'll, you know, just brush up a few things that you already know. So today I will be taking intonation and stress. I know you've already learned intonation and stress in your A01 general paper. But we'll be just going through since you need that in your open course right now. So first let's deal with what is intonation. I hope you remember at least something about intonation, the different types of intonation. It is the pitch, the rise and fall in the voice when you speak. It is, what can we say, different types of intonations are there. The falling tone, the rising tone, the falling rising tone, etc. So anyway, we'll just go through the important basics you need to know. So first of all, an introduction or some of the information, basic information on intonation. What is intonation? Intonation and stress both closely linked, of course. Now, it's uh, very impossible to differentiate them or to, you know, uh, say where stress stops and where intonation starts. So, they somewhat go hand in hand. Intonation is actually the rise and fall in your voice when you speak. It is about how we say things rather than what we say. The way the voice rises and falls when speaking. So, it is basically very beautifully said the music of language. So intonation is basically the rise and fall in a person's voice when he speaks. So it is the music of the language that we hear. Just as words have stressed syllables, sentences have regular patterns of stressed words. In addition, the voice tends to rise, fall or remain flat depending on the meaning or feeling. Okay, so one important thing to note here is that English is a language which, for in which the word meaning does not change with tone, but the sense conveyed changes. Okay, the feeling that is uh, attached to those words, it changes. Intonation therefore indicates the mood of the speaker. There are two basic patterns of intonation in English, the falling tone and the rising intonation or the rising tone. So, uh, the downward arrow, it indicates a fall, uh, what can we say, the falling intonation, whereas an upward arrow indicates the rising intonation. So, the, we cannot say there are basically many clear-cut rules to follow intonation. Uh, you know, you just have to, you know, learn from the native speakers of the language, native speakers of English, or you watch English movies, so you get the flow of intonation. So you cannot say, so these are just some rules that can help you, you know, adjust yourself. But at the same time, learning intonation is quite a different thing. You need to uh, equip yourself by listening, basically listening to the native speakers of English. Okay, so let us move on. Now let's see what are the functions of intonation. Intonation has several functions. It allows the speaker to convey emotions and attitudes in speech such as finality, joy, sadness, etc. 
So that is one important, uh, what can we say, function of uh, intonation. Uh, second point written here is it allows the speaker to stress certain words. Intonation can help the speaker to convey the grammar of the spoken words by pausing at certain points, for example, or by raising the voice to ask a question. Moving on, intonation can help the speaker to convey what he or she expects of the listeners in the discourse by, for example, seeming to ask a question or by conveying when something is new information in contrast to information the listener already knows. So it depends on the, what can we say, your need. So uh, when you use this intonation in your language, there are many hidden aspects of the language that can be conveyed through your, uh, what, what you are saying, through this verbal communication you are using. Next, uh, first type of intonation or the most important tone you have to know is the falling tone. It is the most common intonation pattern in English. The pitch of the voice falls at the end of the sentence. So by the end of the sentence you find a slight fall. It is commonly found in statements, commands, WH questions, confirmatory question tags, exclamations, etc. Okay. Now statements, one example. So you might remember all this from your A01 classes, but still statements like nice to meet you. See, meet you. So there is a fall in your tone. Command, write your name here. There. Commands, we have also studied commands in rising tone also you find commands and requests coming, okay. So you need not confuse yourself. Uh, for simple commands, we can say you use the falling tone. For WH questions, what country do you come from? Again, we have the come from, the falling tone. And uh, exclamations are here, the last one here, how nice of you. So that is also an exclamation. Exclamations also have the falling tone. Now, one important thing that you might not have studied in your uh, A01 paper must be the question tags. Question tags are usually, you know, that has, you know, doesn't he, like, uh, you are good, aren't you? So, that kind of questions are the question tags. So, question tags actually, it uses both the falling tone and the rising tone. Now, there is a slight difference. So, some question tones, they are statements that request confirmation rather than questions okay so it, it is not necessarily a question it is like you know a simple confirmation that is the speaker already knows that that fact is true but still rather confirm confirming he thinks he's so clever doesn't he so doesn't he it has a falling tone so that is, it is not actually kind of a very doubtful question. That is the speaker already knows that the person is acting very over smart. He knows he is very clever. But still for confirmation or like a rhetorical question that does not require an answer. Okay. So these are question tags that are statements that require confirmation. So such question tags have the following tone. Okay. Next is the rising tone. The rising intonation describes how the voice rises at the end of a sentence. Rising intonation is common in yes or no questions. So two important things you have to note in uh, rising tone is that it is used in yes or no questions. Also requests. Requests also basically you find the rising tone. 
Rising in the intonation invites the speaker to continue talking. It is normally used with yes or no questions and also question tags that are real questions. So this is where the difference is. Question tags that are real questions. Yes or no questions, for example, do you like your new teacher? Have you finished already? So that's, you know, already. So there's a rise in your voice, right? Because the yes or no question is indicated by that rise in your voice. Because there is no WH word there. That is the difference of yes or no questions. If you note the uh, common uh, WH questions, they have the what, why, where, when, how, etc. The WH words are there. But in the yes or no questions, there are no WH questions. Instead, you understand it is a question by the rising tone. Okay. Uh, question tags that show uncertainty and require an answer. So these are question tags that, you know, require an answer. So we have met already, haven't we? So that kind of, you know, rising tone. You like fish, don't you? Don't you? So that really requires uh, information, you know. The sp uh, speaker actually is asking whether you like fish or not. It's a, actually a kind of a yes or no question. So Real tag questions that are real questions or and require an answer have the rising too. Okay, so this is another important uh, fact you should know. Uh, we sometimes use a combination of the rising and the falling intonation in the same sentence. So the combination is called the rise fall or the fall rise intonation. So we'll be going into that. Uh, I think in your, uh, in your, uh, when we did A01 in your general paper, you might only have learned about the falling rising tone. We also have a rising falling tone, which I'll be telling you in the next slide. Okay. So here we have the falling rising tone. Uh, the voice falls and then rises, usually within one word. That is this uh, falling rising tone. The main function of falling rising tone is to show that the speaker is not certain of the answer they are giving to a question or is reluctant to reply. Okay? So when there is any uncertainty or doubt in what you are saying, then that shows the falling rising tone. You might remember this from your Razor 1 classes. You have already studied this. You know, when we have words like perhaps, Perhaps I might come. So there is this fall and rise, right? That is, it might rain today. So there is uh, uncertainty. It is also used in polite requests or suggestions. So requests and suggestions also fall under falling rising tone. Hesitation or reluctance. So you'd be willing to confirm that. Well, I suppose so. So that kind of fall rise. I don't quite remember. So that kind of tone that you find in your language. Politeness, doubt, uncertainty, that is you are not sure whether the answer is right. So perhaps we should visit in the place, visit the place. You know, perhaps we could visit the place, the fall rise. Perhaps we should copy the list. Do you think it's allowed? So that kind of tone is the falling, rising tone. Okay. Next, moving on, we have the rising, falling tone. This intonation uh, here, the uh, your pitch or the sound voice rises and then falls. It is actually used in sentences uh, at the end of statements when we want to say that we are not sure and we have more to add. That is the sentence is not complete. We have more to say. I don't support any football team at the moment. So at the moment. 
so the rise and the fall but i may change my mind in the future so that kind of sentences where you want to add something see so the fall rise intonation with questions especially when we request information or we invite somebody to do or have something uh i think uh, it would be better if you, for you uh, to remember this rising falling tone since you have not already learned it in your a01 paper by just looking at the examples here first is choices next lists unfinished thoughts and conditional sentences these are the main uh, you know uh, sentences where you find the rising falling tone choices are you having soup or salad see soup the rising soup or salad so intonation lists intonation uh, when you have many items to say that is you are uh, listing out many things like uh, the example given here we have got apples pears bananas and oranges so the last one is a falling tone so i hope it's clear there next for unfinished thoughts also we have uh, sentences uh for example mm, do you like my new handbag well the leather is nice but i don't like it you know so that is an example there so actually you know you are leaving something unsaid there that is you don't want to offend the listener so you'd saying yeah the leather is nice but personally i don't like it so that kind of an attitude when you have when you say something is what is unfinished thoughts you know sometimes when we you know joke with friends we have all these dialogues in our minds you know we don't say it fully out uh you know we don't fully you know what can we say vocalize everything that we have in our minds sometimes when the teacher also when the teacher says something to you you think something in your mind you know a retort or something a reply back you know a very good reply but you don't say it out loud so when you have that kinds of unfinished thoughts in your mind and then you say something that is a kind of an arising fall tone that ha- that your voice has now conditional sentences uh, another example is given there if he calls leave him a message okay so these are some of the examples of the rising fall uh, intonation okay so i hope it's clear you don't have to know everything you know in every rule that uh, of this uh, intonation you just have to know for uh, you know wh questions what is the tone used that is the kind of questions you will be asked to in the exam okay so when i have gone through your old question papers that were the kind of questions you had to deal with i think that will be all for this class uh, we'll be continuing in the next class with uh, stress and strong and weak forms okay thank you girls good morning and assalamu alaikum my dears So welcome to yet another session of the open course applied language skills. I hope you remember what we did in the last class. Yes, it was intonation. And I hope you have a fairly good idea of intonation in your minds right now. So anyway, this class I'll be dealing with stress, the importance of stress in English language and a few strong and weak forms. So first let's see what is stress. Now English is known as a stressed language. Stressed languages are languages spoken with differing degrees of emphasis on the words and syllables in the sentence. 
English is a stressed language and hence we have both the word stress and the sentence stress. Word stress is when one syllable inside a word is stressed. Okay. Now in sentence stress, certain words are given importance. That is what is sentence stress. Now, although stress and intonation are an important part of English pronunciation, we must remember that to speak naturally, it is very difficult, you know, to speak with the rules in your mind. We won't be able to speak with rules in our mind. You know, all these rules related to intonation and all these rules related to stress. It's not easy to speak with rules, you know. So, the best way to improve your pronunciation is through constant contact with native speakers. So either, you know, through conversations or, you know, by watching uh, English movies, by watching English news channels, listening to the radio. These are just some of the ways you could improve your pronunciation. So it's not easy to just imbibe all these rules and apply it when you're speaking. Okay. So anyway, we'll focus on word stress first. Uh, so, in the English language, when we accentuate or when we stress one syllable in a word, it is called word stress. We pronounce that syllable only louder than the other words. Okay. So, some words might have only one syllable. For example, the word given here is mind. Mind is a four-letter word, but it has only one syllable. If you try to, you know, uh, split it, you won't be able to split it. Mind cannot be split. So, that is one syllable. Now, words with one stressed syllable and one or more weak syllables. So, some words might have many syllables or one or two syllables or more than two syllables and only one syllable will be stressed. For example, remind. So, that is a word, remind. Mind, the second syllable is stressed. Two syllables, remind. And mind is stressed. Next, a three-syllable word, reminder. Reminder, reminder. So the second syllable again is stressed. Similarly, reminding another three-syllable word in which the second syllable is stressed. Now, some of the rules of stress. I know you have already been, uh, you know, gone through all these rules in your A zero one paper. Still, just you know, it's uh, a simple brushing up uh, thing we are doing here. When a noun or an adjective stems from a one-syllable word, for example, art, mind, the stress usually stays on the syllable of the original word. Okay? So, uh, for example, if you look at the table here, art, artist. So, the word art is a one word and artist is a word that comes from the word art. Okay? So, the uh, root word or the original word art is stressed in that word artist. Artist is a two-syllable word but the first syllable is stressed. Break, breakable. When the word break is used to make a two-syllable word breakable, still we stress the original word that is break. Friend, friendly. Paint, painter. See, painter. So, paint is stressed. Come, become, become. Mind, remind. So, that is the first rule you have and uh, moving on to the second rule uh, this is another important rule of stress that is differentiating between a noun and a verb with the same spelling the stress position 
changes so uh, same spelling same word same pronunciation but changing the stress changes the word's meaning that is the word becomes either a noun or a verb so it is from your stress that you understand whether the word is uh, thought to be a noun or a verb for example a decrease decrease so the uh, block the letters i have you know used the word where the letters are in bold those are the word syllable or the um, where the stress comes a decrease so when you d d the stress is on d it is a noun a decrease in rainfall a decrease in the number of students so it is a noun there see so d is stressed now when you use the word decrease as a verb it says to decrease the amount of students so decrease decrease the second syllable is stressed there similarly an insult an insult an object an object a protest a protest so um, that's another important rule that you have to know where the stress comes in the noun always remember that noun is something very important noun is the central element in any statement right so in noun the first syllable is stressed that you have to understand in the verb the next syllable is stressed okay so you'll be able to remember that rule like that now uh, moving on to our next rule a bunch of rules together compound nouns bookshop football when two words are merged into one the stress is on the first part bookshop football okay now the next rule the stress is generally at the end of words ending in eer auctioneer engineer see so the stress is on the last syllable that's not engineer it's not engineer see so the stress is on the last ear the r is silent you have the e sound there so engineer 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 so the stress is on the last syllable that is one rule you have to remember now stress usually falls after prefixes okay now what is a suffix and what is a prefix suffix is something that you add in the beginning of a word suffix prefix is something you add the beginning of a word and suffix is something that comes after okay pre comes before suffix comes after for example demolish okay d uh, dis pre anti un all these are prefixes that are used demolish dismiss prepare okay so pre is not the word that is stressed so the prefixes are not always stressed now the next rule is stress usually falls on the syllable before the following letters these are just some examples that are given here so this is some uh, a basic rule okay so there might be some what can we say a few um, certain words in which this rule might not be applicable but on the whole this is the rule that is applicable so in ion words shun words you know in words that have the tion or the sion attention competition demonstration explanation so where does the stress come it comes on the syllable before tion okay so attention the stress is given on the second syllable attention competition see the shen is not stressed it is the syllable right before the last syllable 
demonstration, explanation. Similarly, before IC or ICAL, automatic, democratic, historic, fanatic. If you apply ICAL also, the same um, rule applies automatically, democratically. Okay. Now, before ITY, ATY, Graphy, OD, OGY words, authority, majority, paternity, society, photography, etc. Before INT, CIENT, IENCE, IAL, all these words, just go through the examples. Okay. So, your next. Uh, rule uh, so these are the some of the rules so you have six basic rules these are not just the complete list of rules these are some of the important rules that you have to note in stress okay now moving on uh, we have uh, the next section that is stressed words in sentences we were speaking of word stress till now now we are moving on to some rules that you have to follow in uh, stressed Stressing words in sentences. Now we were talking about stressing syllables inside words. Now we are going to stressing words in sentences. Not all words receive equal stress within a sentence in English. Content words are stressed. Content words include the noun, normal verb, adjective, adverb. All these are the important content words. So when you speak, these are the content words that are always stressed. Now function words are unstressed. Function words are the determiners uh, A and the, the um, what can we say, the articles we have, the uh, auxiliary verbs can, have, may, will, etc. Conjunctions like and, but, as, etc. Pronouns, the nouns that replace the major nouns. So those the pronouns. So the, these are some of the function words. Function words are never stressed. You know, when you hear people speaking, people always stress the important content words. The function words are always, you know, weakened. Is, was, can, have, a, the, but, etc. are always weakened, are spoken in the weakened form. All these, all these, you know, minor, what can we say, subtle changes in your language that you find, you have to uh, listen to the speak, listen to the native speakers. Okay. Uh, the last point I have noted there is that even, even if the listener does not hear some quickly pronounced function words, the meaning of the sentence is clear. Like, you know, uh, when you're late to reach your home and you are sending an urgent SMS to your parents. So you will uh, maybe, you know, the reason for your delay is you did not get bus or maybe heavy rain. So you might just write heavy rain late. Okay. So they get when they get the message, they'll understand heavy rain. So you will be late. Okay. Because of heavy rain, I will be late. So, you know, these kind of, so these are what is the difference between content words and function words. Function words, you know, with or without the function words, even if you do not pronounce them, you understand the meaning. So uh, that is what happens in uh, when you speak with stressed words within sentences. So this is how all native speakers of English communicate. The emphasis is always put on the important words. An example, would you like a cup of tea? So would you is not stressed. You don't say, would you like a cup of tea? No, it's like, would you like a cup of tea? 
so they might only hear you know the words that stand out or that pop out are like cup tea so they might answer yes okay so that is one important thing next moving on to the strong and weak forms you know the shortened forms that is what is meant by the uh, short, strong and weak forms now grammatical words are words that help us construct the sentence but they don't have any particular meaning like the articles prepositions conjunctions auxiliary verbs we told about them the what can we say the function words okay that is the grammatical words they don't have much meaning in themselves so these words have no stress so they are weakened the weakened form is called the weak form as opposed to the strong form sometimes we have to use the strong form so the strong form is there but in spoken language in spoken english we always prefer the weakened form okay the strong form only happens when we pronounce the words alone only uh, when we say the words alone uh, they have this strong form is important otherwise we always use the weakened form sometimes weak forms are easy to spot because we use contractions in the spelling to show it so it's easy to understand what are the weak forms i am french i'm french i'm see i apostrophe m so you always use that in spelling also uh but usually there is no change sometimes there is no change in spelling but the pronunciation is different for example the word but you know but has a strong form b a to but but the weak form is but you know you don't uh, highlight the central uh, vowel but we say but 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 so only the b and t is you know highlighted there okay next another examples a few more examples i've given there tell him to go the strong form we have the him to you know long vowel u to but in the weak form we say tell him to go tell him to go him becomes um you understand the difference tell him to becomes to to tell him to go so that is the difference there the grammatical words him and to are unstressed and have a weak form when pronounced inside a sentence another example is given there i would like some fish and chips strong form i would like some fish and chips okay now this is very unnatural you know people don't uh, don't uh, ever talk like that you know uh, speakers of english language they don't speak like this i would like some fish and chips it's very unnatural and it's very difficult to understand for a native speaker also so the weak form would be i would like some fish and chips Ah, see, I becomes ah. You can compare the two sentences here in this slide. Ah would, would becomes would. You know the oo sound is uh, toned down there. So I would like some, some fish and chips, and is also shortened there. It simply becomes n, right? You know we always you know while uh, typing or while messaging our friends, we always use the shortened form of and, simply an n. right sufficient chips and we can use the weaker form sometimes sometimes the weaker forms are applied just weak not just the weak form the weaker form that is ad i would becomes ad 
See? Add. Add like some fish and chips. Add like some fish and chips. That's enough, right? So, we can see how the auxiliary verb would has uh, multiple weak forms. Would and d. Okay? So, these are some of the important facts to know about strong and weak forms. Uh, thank you all for your time and patience. Good morning and assalamu alaikum my dears. So welcome to another session of Open Course Applied Language Skills. So today I thought we'll, you know, just brush up a few things that you already know. So today I will be taking intonation and stress. I know you've already learned intonation and stress in your A01 general paper. But we'll be just going through since you need that in your open course right now. So first let's deal with what is intonation. I hope you remember at least something about intonation, the different types of intonation. It is the pitch, the rise and fall in the voice when you speak. It is, what can we say, different types of intonations are there, the falling tone, the rising tone, the falling rising tone, etc. So anyway, we'll just go through the important basics you need to know. So first of all, an introduction or some of the information, basic information on intonation. What is intonation? Intonation and stress both closely linked, of course. Now, it's uh, very impossible to differentiate them or to, you know, uh, say where stress stops and where intonation starts. So, they somewhat go hand in hand. Intonation is actually the rise and fall in your voice when you speak. It is about how we say things rather than what we say. The way the voice rises and falls when speaking. So, it is basically very beautifully said, the music of language. So, intonation is basically the rise and fall in a person's voice when he speaks. So, it is the music of the language that we hear. Just as words have stressed syllables, sentences have regular patterns of stressed words. In addition, the voice tends to rise, fall or remain flat depending on the meaning or feeling. Okay, so one important thing to note here is that English is a language which, for in which the word meaning does not change with tone. But the sense conveyed changes. Okay, the feeling that is uh, attached to those words, it changes. Intonation therefore indicates the mood of the speaker. There are two basic patterns of intonation in English. The falling tone and the rising intonation or the rising tone. So, uh, the downward arrow, it indicates a fall, uh, what can we say, the falling intonation, whereas an upward arrow indicates the rising intonation. So, the, we cannot say there are basically many clear-cut rules to follow intonation. Uh, you know, you just have to, you know, learn from the native speakers of the language, native speakers of English, or you watch English movies, so you get the flow of intonation. So you cannot say, so these are just some rules that can help you, you know, adjust yourself. But at the same time, learning intonation is quite a different thing. You need to uh, equip yourself by listening 
basically listening to the native speakers of English. Okay, so let us move on. Now let's see what are the functions of intonation. Intonation has several functions. It allows the speaker to convey emotions and attitudes in speech such as finality, joy, sadness, etc. So that is one important, uh, what can we say, function of uh, intonation. Uh, second point written here is it allows the speaker to stress certain words. Intonation can help the speaker to convey the grammar of the spoken words by pausing at certain points, for example, or by raising the voice to ask a question. Moving on, intonation can help the speaker to convey what he or she expects of the listeners in the discourse by, for example, seeming to ask a question or by conveying when something is new information in contrast to information the listener already knows. So it depends on the, what can we say, your need. So uh, when you use this intonation in your language, there are many hidden aspects of the language that can be conveyed through your, uh, what, what you are saying, through this verbal communication you are using. Next, uh, first type of intonation or the most important tone you have to know is the falling tone. It is the most common intonation pattern in English. The pitch of the voice falls at the end of the sentence. So by the end of the sentence, you find a slight fall. It is commonly found in statements, commands, WH questions, confirmatory question tags, exclamations, etc. Okay. Now statements, one example. So you might remember all this from your A01 classes, but still statements like nice to meet you. See, meet you. So there's a fall in your tone. Command, write your name here. There. Commands, we have also studied commands in rising tone. Also, you find commands and requests coming. Okay. So you need not confuse yourself. Uh, for simple commands, we can say you use the falling tone. For WH questions, what country do you come from? Again, we have the come from, the falling tone. And uh, exclamations are here, the last one here, how nice of you. So that is also an exclamation. Exclamations also have the falling tone. Now, one important thing that you might not have studied in your uh, A01 paper must be the question tags. Question tags are usually, you know, that has, you know, doesn't he, like, uh, you are good, aren't you? So that kind of questions are the question tags. So question tags actually, it uses both the falling tone and the rising tone. Now, there is a slight difference. So some question tones, they are statements that request confirmation rather than questions. Okay. So it, it is not necessarily a question, it is like, you know, a simple confirmation. That is, the speaker already knows that that fact is true, but still rather confirm, confirming. He thinks he's so clever, doesn't he? So doesn't he? It has a falling tone. So that is, it is not actually kind of a very doubtful question. That is, the speaker already knows that the person is acting very oversmart. He knows he's very clever. But still for confirmation or like a rhetorical question that does not require an answer. Okay. So these are question tags that are statements that require confirmation. So such question tags have the following tone. Okay. Next is the rising tone. The rising intonation describes how the voice rises at the end of a sentence. 
Rising intonation is common in yes or no questions. So two important things you have to note in uh, rising tone is that it is used in yes or no questions. Also requests. Requests also basically you find the rising tone. Rising in the intonation invites the speaker to continue talking. It is normally used with yes or no questions and also question tags that are real questions. So this is where the difference is. Question tags that are real questions. Yes or no questions, for example, do you like your new teacher? Have you finished already? So that's, you know, already. So there's a rise in your voice, right? Because the yes or no question is indicated by that rise in your voice. Because there is no WH word there. That is the difference of yes or no questions. If you note the uh, common uh, WH questions, they have the what, why, where, when, how, etc. The WH words are there. But in the yes or no questions, there are no WH questions. Instead, you understand it is a question by the rising tone. Okay. Uh, question tags that show uncertainty and require an answer. So these are question tags that, you know, require an answer. So we have met already, haven't we? So that kind of, you know, rising tone. You like fish, don't you? Don't you? So that really requires uh, information, you know. The sp uh, speaker actually is asking whether you like fish or not. It's a, actually a kind of a yes or no question. So real qu uh, ta tag questions that are real questions or and require an answer have the rising too. Okay, so this is another important uh, fact you should know. Uh, we sometimes use a combination of the rising and the falling intonation in the same sentence. So the combination is called the rise fall or the fall rise intonation. So we'll be going into that. Uh, I think in your uh, in your uh, when we did A01 in your general paper, you might only have learned about the falling rising tone. We also have a rising falling tone, which I'll be telling you in the next slide. Okay. So here we have the falling rising tone. Uh, the voice falls and then rises, usually within one word. That is this uh, falling rising tone. The main function of fall rise tone is to show that the speaker is not certain of the answer they are giving to a question or is reluctant to reply. Okay, So when there is any uncertainty or doubt in what you are saying, then that shows the falling rising tone. You might remember this from your Razor 1 classes. You have already studied this. You know, when we have words like perhaps, Perhaps I might come. So there is this fall and rise, right? That is, it might rain today. So there is uh, uncertainty. It is also used in polite requests or suggestions. So requests and suggestions also fall under falling rising tone. Hesitation or reluctance. So you'd be willing to confirm that. Well, I suppose so. So that kind of fall rise. I don't quite remember. So that kind of tone that you find in your language. Politeness, doubt, uncertainty, that is you are not sure whether the answer is right. So perhaps we should visit in the place, visit the place. You know, perhaps we could visit the place, the fall rise. Perhaps we should copy the list. Do you think it's allowed? So that kind of tone is the falling, rising tone. Okay. Next, moving on, we have the rising, falling tone. This intonation uh, here, the uh, your pitch or the sound voice rises and then falls. 
it is actually used in sentences uh, at the end of statements when we want to say that we are not sure and we have more to add that is the sentence is not complete we have more to say i don't support any football team at the moment so at the moment so the rise and the fall but i may change my mind in the future so that kind of sentences where you want to add something see so the fall rise intonation with questions especially when we request information or we invite somebody to do or have something uh, i think uh, it would be better if you, for you uh, to remember this rising falling tone since you have not already learned it in your a01 paper by just looking at the examples here first is choices next lists unfinished thoughts and conditional sentences these are the main uh you know uh, sentences where you find the rising falling tone choices are you having soup or salad see soup the rising soup or salad so intonation lists intonation uh, when you have many items to say that is you are uh, listing out many things like uh, the example given here we have got apples pears bananas and oranges so the last one is a falling tone so i hope it's clear there next for unfinished thoughts also we have uh, sentences uh for example mm, do you like my new handbag well the leather is nice but i don't like it you know so that is an example there so actually you know you are leaving something unsaid there that is you don't want to offend the listener so you'd saying yeah the leather is nice but personally i don't like it so that kind of an attitude when you have when you say something is what is unfinished thoughts you know sometimes when we you know joke with friends we have all these dialogues in our minds you know we don't say it fully out uh, you know we don't fully you know what can we say vocalize everything that we have in our minds sometimes when the teacher also when the teacher says something to you you think something in your mind you know a retort or something a reply back you know a very good reply but you don't say it out loud so when you have that kinds of unfinished thoughts in your mind and then you say something that is a kind of an arising fall tone that ha- that your voice has now conditional sentences uh, another example is given there if he calls leave him a message okay so these are some of the examples of the rising fall uh, intonation okay so i hope it's clear you don't have to know everything you know in every rule that uh, of this uh, intonation you just have to know for uh, you know wh questions what is the tone used that is the kind of questions you will be asked to in the exam okay so when i have gone through your old question papers that were the kind of questions you had to deal with I think that will be all for this class. Uh, we'll be continuing in the next class with uh, stress and strong and weak forms. Okay, thank you, girls. Good morning and assalamualaikum, my dears. So, hope you all are doing well. And welcome to yet another session of A zero five signatures. So today we'll be starting the new chapter. that is from the last module our module 4 letter to adolf hitler which was written by gandhi ji so i hope you remember what we did in the last class we had actually gone through the diary entries of anne frank 
and uh, I gave you all the basics uh, about Anne Frank, the Holocaust, the uh, problems faced by the Jews and what Nazism is, what Hitler did to them, what the oppression against the Jews, uh, the World War II, all the basics were covered in the last class. So I think uh, this session is going to be a bit more easier because we have a repartee or we have a follow-up here in which uh, we find that Adolf Hitler was uh, sent a letter by Gandhiji. So let's see what it's all about. So two of the very popular figures, two men who have created a space for themselves in history, who have created history in a sense, who have uh, made a mark in history, but for two very different reasons. A man known for his peace, a man known for his non-violence, a man known for ahimsa. And the, on the other side, we have a man who had created, what can we say, the world's largest genocide or this holocaust in which uh, around 6 million Jews were killed. So two very different men, two very different concepts. So let's see what we have in store for us in this session. So first a basic uh, comparison of uh, Gandhiji and uh, Hitler. They both represent two extremes of human character. Yes, very nicely said, right? Anyway, here we have Mohandas Karamchand Gandhi, the full name of Gandhi and Adolf Hitler. Gandhiji born in the year 1869 and Hitler born in the year 1889, a few years apart, some 20 years apart. And Gandhiji died in the year 1948 while Hitler died in the year 1945. Now, Gandhiji is considered the paragon of patience and a sacrifice, something we all know, right? Whereas Adolf Hitler is synonymous with brutality, violence, oppression, etc. Now, we have Gandhiji whose policy of non-violence was very unique and it was also very effective in attaining the, uh, what can we say, freedom for India. Both of them were actually really, you know, what can we say, powerful leaders who represented uh, a section of society. Now, Gandhiji, he won the heart of his followers through his precept and practice. Precept meaning a sense of principle a person has in uh, transforming his behavior. So he had this principle, he had this ideology and he had this practice. He had practiced what he preached. So he won the heart of his followers. So the people loved him and people followed him for that. It's not only just in India. If you, uh, all, if you have read through Gandhiji's uh, experiments with truth, his, auto, his famous, very popular autobiography, you might know that he speaks, uh, he tells about his uh, you know, past where he was in South Africa. He had, uh, you know, how he had a fought for civil rights in South Africa, the free equality for the Indians in South Africa there. So it is not just in India that he was popular and where he had practiced his uh, non-violent struggle, but it was also 
in South Africa. Uh, so he won the heart of his followers through the precept and through his precept and practice his principles and his ideologies. And Adolf Hitler, on the other hand, he was a disciplinarian. He imposed authority on his men. We saw this in his in the chapter uh, by Charlie Chaplin, uh, which in which uh, we spoke of uh, how Hitler was a disciplinarian and how he imposed authority on his men. Though the, you know, a, a euphemism, a wrong name was used. So he did not actually win the heart of his followers. He imposed authority on them. So they had no other option but to follow him. Now, Gandhiji was a person who believed in egalitarianism. Egalitarianism means a concept where a person wants, what can we say, political, economic or social uh, equality. Whereas Hitler, on the other hand, he believed in well-defined hierarchies. That is, he felt that uh, those in power would always remain in power. There is no equality. There is always this uh, superior-inferior kind of status in society. Next, uh, moving on, uh, we'll see something of uh, uh, in more in detail about Gandhiji. What he said in the uh, lesson, Mohandas Karamchand Gandhi, we all know that, uh, you know, uh, he was born in India. He studied law in London. Uh, he used nonviolence and it earned him the title Mahatma, which meant great soul in Sanskrit. He studied law in London. He practiced his law. He was a, a barrister. He was an, a, a lawyer in South Africa. And uh, his uh, practice there or his life in South Africa actually molded his ethical and political views. So that is where he started recognizing this kind of, uh, you know, um, intolerance against a difference where people started uh, having this uh, racial or a kind of, you know, bigotry in their mindset. So he started, um, you know, uh, rebelling or revolting against it. He first employed the non-violent civil disobedience in uh, South Africa in the struggle for civil rights. Civil disobedience was where the people would just, you know, uh, disobey authority. There was no violence, there was no such thing, but they would disobey them. So it was a kind of, you know, a non-cooperation. That is what it all meant. Everything was non-violent. Uh, and he was influenced by Tolstoy and he established an ideal community called the Tolstoy Farm in 1910. It was in a place, uh, Johannesburg in South Africa. And uh, on his return to India, actually, uh, he started, uh, you know, organizing a small kind of small-scale protests and revolts against the British for small, small uh, things. It started with the increased land tax, the small problems of discrimination against Indians. So it was not, you know, uh, in the beginning itself, it was not about complete freedom for India. So when Gandhiji started his struggle for independence, it was uh, in a small scale. It was for land tax. It was for other kinds of small, small issues against with the British they had. So he organized these protests in which he, you know, um, brought together the, uh, what can we say, the common man, he brought, uh, he brought together the uh, laborers, the farmers, etc. And he organized protests against the British. Next, uh, he became the leader of the Indian National Congress in the year 1921. And he started leading the freedom struggle. So it was a very much later, I think in the 1940s, 
that the struggle for complete independence complete swaraj only started and uh, in the year 1948 one year after uh, our independence he was assassinated by um, naturam gaudse who was a religious fanatic so a very tragic end and that was uh, where we come to uh, you know the end of gandhi's uh, chapter in a uh, chapter in history now uh, moving on we have adolf hitler hitler was the chancellor or the dictator of germany from the year 1933 to 1945 till his death he actually initiated the second world war in europe with the invasion of poland in uh, september 1939 and his autobiography is very popular mein kampf it is in german it means my struggle Mm, it's also a very you know a uh, very a uh, best selling kind of a book a very popular autobiography one of uh, the most popular autobiographies main kampf and he promoted pan germanism that is promoting germanism anti semitism that is you know anti uh, jewish sentimentality and anti communism he was also against communism uh, he was always promoting capitalism the rich will always remain rich concept and he was also notorious for the holocaust which was one of the greatest atrocities committed against humanity in which as i as we told in the earlier chapters uh, more than 5 million uh, 5.5 million jews around 6 million jews were completely wiped out it's not a small amount you know it's not a small number actually so actually his uh, argument was for racial purity he wanted uh, germany to be pure to be racially pure he wanted to wipe out all these jews and he was influenced by charles darwin and uh, herbert spencer we all know the theories that they brought forward that was the natural selection the survival of the fittest so he believed that you know natural selection what did it say that it was you know we select the best people and only they would survive that is what was meant by natural selection uh, and uh, herbert spencer's uh, theory of like you know the survival of the fittest survival of the fittest and all which uh, spoke of only the best people could survive you know uh, so the people with less authority the people with less power would go down uh, it is said that he killed himself uh, to avoid capture and led that was uh, you know basically that led to the end of world war 2 also the bombing of hiroshima and nagasaki also contributed to the end of world war 2 now moving on to the significance of gandhi's letter what did this letter have so much importance what was so important about this letter uh, actually it's very important in contemporary times meaning in modern uh, time in the modern age it's very important because a violence continues in disguised and sanitized forms violence is so you know it becomes you know some kind of you know um, a kind of a power play here and there is a growing mistrust between nations and communities on an unprecedented scale globally unprecedented scale meaning a large scale so a growing mistrust between nations that means that people were starting to have this uh, kind of mistrust uh, uh, nations uh, were having this mistrust uh, between themselves you know 
uh, america did not fully trust japan japan would not fully trust china and uh, even communities had that problem even communities had that growing mistrust so everything people started fearing one another and nations the third point nations were becoming increasingly intolerant of difference so you know when you find someone who is different from you you are intolerant you know the basic meaning of the term intolerant like we say in malayalam asahishnuta so you know you have this basic uh, incapacity to tolerate that is what is intolerance so intolerance of difference so you are not able to tolerate difference so even if you have this uh, in your class when there are 20 uh, 35 students in your class so five of them will be from some other country or some other kind of you know race so is some other um, religion or some other kind of a community so you have an intolerance for them they will be outcast in your community in your class so this kind of intolerance people having this concept of you know bringing together only what is same to you now gandhi's letter raises his genuine concerns for the sake of humanity he was saying uh, his concern for the peace his concern for the future of humanity so written during the second world war after germany's occupation of czechoslovakia the letter is a plea to stop the war okay and uh, in the letter he is pleading that uh, uh, hitler should stop everything now because uh, you know uh, it was coming it was becoming very uh, horrible the world was going to a world war he wrote two letters actually to hitler it's a very important fact you have to note he wrote actually two letters the first letter was written in the year july 1939 and the second one was written in december 1940 it is the second letter that we are studying in your a05 text okay so bear in mind there were two letters the first one was written in july 1939 and the second one was written in december 1940 but both the letters it is believed that it when they were not delivered uh, to hitler because uh, the it was intercepted by the british government the british had actually taken the letter uh, the first letter in the first letter gandhi places the onus on hitler that is the power on hitler to prevent a massive war that will reduce humanity to a savage state so if you note the first letter was written in the year 1939 it was around the time the uh, second world war was just starting so he was telling hitler that he had the power to prevent this war and he urges hitler to take recourse to an international tribunal for an amicable settlement of the issues at stake so he is asking hitler to take recourse to an to take what can we say a remedy from an international tribunal international tribunal like the united nations organi- uh, organization or like a supreme court uh, or like a very you know a court uh, where like a world court kind of a setup an international tribunal in which the problems of the countries could be solved for an amicable settlement meaning a favorable settlement okay so if uh, uh, hitler was having a problem with uh, america uh, if hitler was having a problem with uh, the soviet union if hitler was having a problem uh, with uh, britain they had to you know take the problem to an international tribunal like the united nations organization and have it solved rather than go for war so that is what hitler was uh, gandhi ji was giving the so was uh, that is the solution that gandhi ji gives hitler 
So that will be all in this class. I think uh, we'll go on to the content of the letter, the important uh, facts that are revealed, um, that is dealt with in the letter in the next class. So thank you girls for your time and patience and have a safe day. Keep smiling. Good morning and assalamu alaikum girls. Hope you all are doing well. And welcome to our second session of our uh, lesson a letter to Adolf Hitler by MK Gandhi so we have already uh, gone through in the last class we have already gone through uh, many uh, important basics about the chapter um, the chapter comes in the last module in your A05 text we have already seen the difference between Gandhi and Hitler how they two how both of them represent two extremes of human character we also went in detail about Mohandas Karamchand Gandhi and how he came to form this non-violent struggle and his uh, stint in uh, South Africa. And also we went uh, in detail about Adolf Hitler, how Hitler was the vice chancellor, how Hitler was the chancellor of Germany, about his autobiography Mein Kampf, about uh, how he wanted or. Uh, was influenced by Darwin and Spencer and wanted racial purity and uh, we le what led to his uh, death, uh, suicide actually, which led to the end of World War II. Then we went to the significance of Gandhiji's letter, how it is important or the significance of the letter in the modern era, uh, the growing mistrust between nations, the intolerance to difference how the letter by Gandhiji is actually a plea or a request to Hitler to stop the war. Uh, I also told you that uh, Hitler had actually, Gandhiji had actually written two letters to Hitler, one in the year 1939, July, and the second one in December 1940. So you have to note that the second letter written in December 1940 is the letter that we are studying. And... Uh, how Gandhiji is asking Hitler to take a stand and uh, to prevent this massive war and he is also oh, actually providing a solution uh, in which he is asking Hitler to approach an international tribunal for a solution. Okay, So in this class we will be going to the content of the letter. Now uh, what do we have in the content of the letter? Actually, in the content of the letter, it's a very beautiful beginning. Actually, the letter has a very beautiful start. It is something that you should read, you know, actually. So, I'll just read out the uh, a few lines from the starting. Uh, Gandhiji is addressing the letter like this. Uh, Dear friend, that I address you as a friend is no formality. I owe no force. My business in life has been for the past 33 years to enlist the friendship of the whole of humanity by befriending mankind, irrespective of race, color or creed. I hope you will have the time and desire to know how a good portion of humanity who view living under the influence of that doctrine of universal friendship view your action. Okay, so this is the start to our letter, that uh, the letter we are studying. Um, so Gandhiji is uh, starting the letter very, uh, you know, in a very amicable way, in a very friendly way. He's saying, dear friend, I address you as my friend because it is not a formality, because I don't have any enemies. 
and then he's uh, speaking of uh, the occupation of countries like Czechoslovakia, Poland and Denmark by Hitler, what Hitler had done to these countries. So we all know his invasion of Poland was what led to the Second World War. And uh, Gandhiji condemns uh, this act of Germany as immoral and indecent and says that it is a gross violation of human rights, that no country has the power to, you know, uh, show its power over the other country. Just because you are powerful, it doesn't mean that you can uh, throw the other down. Uh, but at the same time, Gandhiji is saying that he does not believe that Hitler is a monster as described by his opponents. Like everyone was saying how Hitler was a very uh, cruel person, was a very barbaric person, what, uh, you know, that kind of Okay, so Gandhi says that he did not believe that Hitler was a monster. And uh, he also says that they have been, we have been taught from childhood to abhor such acts of violence, that is to hate these acts of violence. Uh, uh, he also tells uh, Hitler in this letter that all the people are equal and people should not be differentiated in the name of race uh, or creed. Okay, So uh, basically the problem in Germany was that Hitler was differentiating people on the basis of their race and ethnicity. So this kind of discrimination is not right. You know, as we told in the earlier class, uh, Gandhi was an egalitarian. Egalitarian means a person who wanted equality for all, a kind of political, economic or social equality for all. So he did not believe that there should be any kind of discrimination. So he is telling Hitler that there should be no discrimination. Next, moving on, he is speaking of the situation in India. This is a very important uh, portion here. He is uh, using the line, ours is a unique position. Now, what is meant by ours is a unique position? Ours here meaning India's. India's position is a unique position. So, you have to imagine that Gandhiji is writing the letter to Hitler. Now, who is Hitler fighting against? Germany was fighting against America and Britain. America and the United Kingdom. So, United Kingdom was the power that was occupying India. So actually, if you think Gandhi and Hitler, they had the same enemy, that was the British. I hope you get the idea is clear here. Uh, and he's saying that we resist British imperialism as well as Nazism. But we won't come together with you. We won't be friends with the Germany because we resist uh, Nazism as much as we resist British imperialism. We are against both. But the Indian resistance to British power does not mean harm to the British people. That is another important point um, that Gandhiji is trying to say. He is saying that we do not wish harm to the British people. That is, though we are against the British, though we are fighting this uh, war for independence against the British imperialism, against the British power there, but still we do not wish harm for the in British people. We are trying to convert them, not defeat them. So we are not trying to, you know, defeat Britain. We are trying to convert them to make them understand that this is our country and you should let us be. You should give us freedom. So it was a non-violent means of struggle. It was a kind of a resistance that the Indians were practicing against the British power. Okay, so that is what he means here by ours is a unique position. So, you know, basically we always think if we have the same enemy, then that means we can be friends, right? 
so india and germany they had the common enemy that was the british so everyone would think they they should come together but gandhi is saying we resist both nazism as well as british power we use an unarmed revolt that is non violence and non cooperation and uh, he's this is a, another beautiful line that gandhi ji is saying that the rulers have our land and our bodies but not our souls that is another important line that gandhi uses in the letter it's very powerful actually right because uh, you can have our land you can have our bodies you can beat us you can oppress us you can do anything you want but you cannot have our souls our indian souls are strong here right so you cannot have the indian soul now gandhi tells hitler that the common man in india will rise to heroism that is if there is a need to fight for freedom if there will be a need for the common man to get into the battlefield they will be willing though there may be some who might be frightened and they might back out they might bend their backs but still there is a vast majority of common man uh, uh normal uh, man woman and child who are willing to fight for their so there are many indians out there who are willing to fight for their country now there are also uh, these indians are willing to lay down their lives for their homeland next we have uh, he, uh, further uh, points about the indian struggle uh he says the indians have been trying for the past half a century to throw off the british rule the britishers have been here for a long long time and the indians have been trying for a long time for freedom now the fight for freedom is very strong now so gandhi ji is referring to the time the year 1940 he is saying the fight for freedom is very strong right now so 1940 we can imagine 1947 india got its independence so we are you know very close to our uh, goal so uh, we are only using the non violent struggle but still we would not wish to end the british rule with german help so though we are in a very unique position we would not wish to end the british rule with german help you know people would think they would you know we would seek their help but we don't want your help now in non violence a very uh, important fact that gandhi says here is that in non violence there is no defeat there is no loser it is a do or die without killing or hurting it's a do or die situation you know you are not investing anything it's non violence you don't have anything to lose so there is no defeat for you it is either you get what you want or you don't get what you want it does not mean you are defeated it's a do or die situation there is no need for money in non violence struggle there is no need for money a very good plus point there is no need for science and technology another important plus point now as a cosmopolitan uh, gandhi believed that administration that relies on military strength and weapons will never last uh, a cosmopolitan is a person who wants uh, you know everyone to be together you know a cosmopolitan is a person who wants uh, the correct dictionary meaning would be including people from many different countries a cosmopolitan is a person who includes everyone who wants everyone to be together so as a cosmopolitan gandhi is a cosmopolitan i am a cosmopolitan you might be a cosmopolitan you want people to be together everyone in uh, in spite of their differences right so as a cosmopolitan gandhi believed that administration that relies on military strength and weapons will never last 
only the non-violent struggle will last forever. So, non-violent struggle uh, is the only struggle that will, you know, succeed in the end. Now, finally, we have Gandhi giving a message to the despotic rulers, that is the rulers Mussolini and Hitler, right? So, Gandhi also speaks about Mussolini in his letter. Mussolini propagated fascism. Fascism and Nazism were both alike. It is, uh, you know, just like two, uh, two, this, uh, it was two, you know, two phases of the same concept. Now, Mussolini was also like Hitler. Mussolini was the dictator of Hit Italy and uh, he was also doing war in many countries with an intention to conquer them. So both Hitler and Mussolini had this thirst or hunger for power. They wanted power, they wanted to be world rulers, right? Now Gandhi here asks both Hitler and Mussolini to pursue the policies of peace. And he says that the vast majority of people do not like wars. It's just people like Hitler and Mussolini who want war and peace, who want to become rulers of the world. And he wants Hitler that he is not leaving a legacy for his people with all this violence and killing. Nothing to be proud of. So actually uh, Gandhiji is giving a very good uh, point here. He is telling Hitler that by doing all this killing and all, you are not making your people proud. You are not leaving a legacy. You are not leaving a history for your people to be proud of. Right? You are not giving your people something uh, to be proud of. Mm. You are just making them more miserable. So he wants Hitler that they are he's not leaving anything for his people to be proud of. He asks them to take their problems to an international tribunal to come to a solution. I told you in the last class what an international uh, tribunal is. It is a uh, you know an international body where you can solve your problems. Like the United Nations organization is an example. Now he's asking. Uh, Hitler and Mussolini to take their problems to this international tribunal. If they have a problem with America, if they have a problem with the British countries, with the Britain, then they have to uh, come to a solution, a peaceful solution, not by doing war. Winning the war, he gives a very uh, valid point here that winning the war will only show that your power of destruction is greater, that you are more powerful, right? If you win the war, it does not mean that you are right. To prove that you are right, you have to prove yourself before an international body or an uh, UNO. Okay, so doing war is not the correct method. Uh, actually, uh, he ends the letter by saying that he can hear people in Europe, people in Germany crying for peace. He can hear Gandhiji can hear them yearning for peace. You know, yearning meaning desiring peace. They want peace. So why not give them what they want? Give them peace because I can hear they cry for peace. People are fed up with war. People want you to end this uh, fight, right? Uh, they want you to end this war. So they want to come to a peaceful end. So give them what they want. So uh, give the people peace. So uh, he is uh, also giving this message. He is saying... Uh, consider this letter as addressed to Mussolini's uh, senior Mussolini also and he should also consider this message and take it into account. So that is all in this chapter. So we have come to the end of uh, uh, letter, to Gandhi, letter to Hitler by M.K. Gandhi. So I hope you understood everything and thank you for your time and patience. Keep smiling. Hello, good morning, assalamu alaikum my dears. 
so hope you all are doing well so we have come uh, somewhat to the close of uh, derrida and deconstruction so today we'll be starting with the essay of derrida that you have uh, been prescribed in your syllabus that is structure sign and play in the discourse of human sciences it is an essay by shack derrida so uh, today's class uh, i hope to go through the basics and the context of the essay so i'm uh, moving to the context of the essay or the background of the essay uh, these are some of the facts mm -hmm. to keep in mind that uh, this was the essay it was actually first it was a lecture that was delivered by shakter rida at the john hopkins mm -hmm. university in the year 1966 so actually it was at this uh, university uh, at a function where uh, this discussion or a seminar was going on about the structuralism which was a new theory at the time so this lecture was delivered by shack terida at the john hopkins university in the year 1966 later uh, the same uh, lecture it was uh, published as the 10th chapter in his famous book uh, writing and difference in the year 1967 okay so uh, basically what he was uh, trying to say was uh, you know as we have already gone through the basics of uh, deconstruction we know what are the basic uh, arguments or the concepts that were put forward by derrida so uh, the lecture was published uh, uh, in writing in difference in 1967 he argued against the history of philosophy which was based on logocentrism logocentrism where the uh, center was actually reason or language which was given importance rather than emotion so uh, he was saying that uh, the basic all the philosophy all western philosophy were based were logocentric so he was arguing against it for him language was uh, very highly subjective subjective means it was solely dependent on the reader to uh, interpret it to have meaning okay so Uh, actually derrida in the essay he is uh, trying to tell us what he owns to uh, sochor ferdinand de sochor at the same time he is telling us why he diverges from the concept of structuralism okay so i think uh, we'll move on to the next slide here which we will be going into detail into the content of the essay so uh, the essay begins uh, actually derrida begins the essay by referring to an event which perhaps occurred in the history of the concept of structure so he is saying when this uh, structuralism was uh, introduced somewhere along the way an event occurred S some event occurred uh, which changed everything so this event is called uh, the rupture or the post structuralist turn rupture rupture means you know a breaking an explosion or a break etc so this event which he calls the rupture it is the post structuralist turn that is that is where deconstruction comes so somewhere along the way in the study of structure this kind of a rupture occurred this break took place 
this uh, turn from the logic of structuralism that is uh, structuralism was uh, the logic of structuralism turned against itself okay so we know how structure was defined and how the logic of structuralism became opposed to itself how derrida says such a structure cannot exist anyway he questions the basic metaphysical concept of western philosophy that there is a fixed center for any structure that was basically what structuralism was saying so he questions this basic metaphysical concept that there is a center uh, you know we have already gone through the uh, in the last classes we have uh, i think covered more than uh, four uh, classes on uh, deconstruction alone so you basically know what is a center and uh, what happens when there is a center okay when you imagine discourse or imagine society as such and it has a center for example if it the center is god okay and uh, how uh, god is the center of the structure and god decides what happens so he is deciding what happens to humans or he is deciding the way of life or god has set down certain rules and we all are following that rule so we are within that system a structure within a structure where god is the center but if god is inside the center then he cannot uh, what can we say if god is inside the center then he too will be governed by the rules of the center right but as we know god is transcendental we don't see god so god is nowhere inside the structure actually god is somewhere outside the structure so that is when he says that the center is not inside the center the center is simultaneously inside and also outside the center so the center actually this point that i have written here the center limits free play that it makes possible that is center is not really the center limits free play free play meaning the freedom of within this structure so you don't have much free play within the structure because of this center the center has decided certain rules and or certain concepts which are being followed inside the structure so free play is limited okay free play meaning basically the freedom okay so center is not really the center because it is not inside the structure it is outside okay so center is not always inside the structure and god is just an example i have stated here this is the basic uh, example we always give for center it has to be outside the center to limit free play okay so if you cannot stay inside the structure and look who is going outside okay correct if you imagine a circle the center cannot decide who is going out correct so the center has to be somewhere outside the structure to decide who is to guard the uh, boundaries or to limit free play to look who is uh, going outside so the problem of the center it attempts to exclude others ignore repress or marginalize others so this was the basic problem of structure center in a structure that is structuralism limited free play when you are talking about lion when you have the concept of lion and uh, as i told you in structuralism sign signifier signified this uh, in within a structure you have limited meanings right but actually it is limitless there should be free play there should not be a center that is what derrida is saying center actually limits free play 
now what caused this rupture or what are the reasons for this rupture that occurred in the growth of structuralism so three major figures before derrida they were responsible for the rupture uh, nietzsche freud and heidegger these were the three main critics or the main poor, uh, figures who have contributed to this rupture but it was incomplete in a way nietzsche's critique of metaphysics and that of being and truth in which nietzsche said that god is dead god is dead meaning uh, you know if there is a god the structure is strong right if god is dead then there is limited uh, there is actually limitless free play you know you can do anything so it actually opens up new possibilities it does not mean that uh, god is dead concept does not really mean a kind of um, what can we say um, atheistic concept is being brought about here but it says it simply refers to the concept that the structure becomes limitless also freud's critique of self presence heidegger's destruction of metaphysics of ontology the determination of being as presence all these just points you have to note down the three name names you have to know who were responsible for the rupture these are all points or uh, what comes within the essay okay there it is essay so these are the points that are discussed all the slides that i that i'm going to show in the in next are comes within our points that are discussed in the essay and then we have derrida speaking of the synchronic and diachronic study you know what is synchronic and diachronic so derrida looks at structures both diachronically and synchronically diachronically meaning historically synchronically meaning sync that is within the same same time space okay for example the center of human society it shifted from god to renaissance man in the uh, episteme or in the era of uh, renaissance the center shifted from god to man so this kind of a shift in the center you know i told you that uh, god is not a fixed center every time the center keeps on changes changing so this uh, shift in center is only diachronically only historically this center can shift changes right so at a given point that is at a given point uh, in time that is at one point in time the center of the structure cannot be substituted by various permutations by various uh, what can we say combinations okay so at a given point of time in every structure the center will be the same but historically the center can get replaced that is at one given era the center will be the same but in the next era or in the next age the center might get replaced so one uh, the, the just the point you have to note here is that that derrida is looking at the study of structures both diachronically and synchronically and he is saying diachronically that is historically center can change but synchronically center will not change now next moving on to the concept of decentering okay that is the basic concept of deconstruction so in the essay also he is saying about this concept of decentering and he is arguing that this uh, initiation of the process of decent this decentering actually uh, is a basic feature of the modern era modern era means the center process of decentering had started somewhere in the modern era for example he is giving references like uh, world war world war first world war uh, which destroyed the illusion of steady progress so uh, you know a kind of a dissolutionment started pre- 
creeping into the people's mind and people started looking at everything with uh, skepticism with doubt they started losing trust in each other the holocaust the theory of relativity modernism all these are examples of uh, this process of decentering starting so somewhere around uh, this uh, in the modern age people started losing this concept of center this need for center but derrida is saying that all these attempts at decentering all these uh, uh, you know attempts by various uh, people at decentering were however trapped in a sort of a circle it means that it could not be completed yeah, they were going round and round it was not completely attained actually with the removal of center it is only with the complete removal of center that infinite play takes place infinite play meaning limited limitless without any limit so limitless play can take place only with the removal of center in the next slide also we are again are uh, discussing about the concept uh, this uh, basic construct of the uh, concept of decentering which is said in the essay itself that he is saying that each sign defines itself with respect to other signs showing that there is no center and in this case even transcendental signifier needs to be defined with the respect to other signs so when this decentering occurs when there is no center what happens look at the point each sign defines itself with respect to other signs when you have the word lion in your uh, when you hear the word lion or when you see the word lion many images can come to your mind with respect to other signs so it comes on it keeps on changing that there is no center you know you you cannot say you have to think when i tell lion this is the lion you have to imagine no there is no center so you you know it keeps on differing and even the transcendental signifier needs to be defined with respect to other signs transcendental signifier means the signifies that we don't see for example god you know apple is a sign that we can see right transcendental signifier means a signifier that is beyond our uh, no consciousness so something that we cannot see transcendental it is beyond so even because we don't have this image of a god you know this uh, sign is not there still we have this concept there right so that is a transcendental signifier so even that without a center everything is being deferred it uh, keeps on delaying so there is no structure and everything becomes a discourse uh now one important fact to note here is that derrida does not actually ask you to do away uh, with the structures that is what is meant by do away with structures he does not say to completely remove structures he is he is not saying that you know abolish all structures no need of any structure no that is not what he is saying okay so uh, derrida does not actually say uh, that uh, there should not be structure he is not saying uh, to remove all structures in fact what derrida is suggesting that the necessity of people that we have this necessity to keep a structure for discourse to take place you know you need a structure if there is to be a discourse okay so this necessity of uh, what is this the need for a structure is what is highlighted here by derrida and he says that without this uh, you know having this limitless uh, free play it can actually take place uh, through the uh, what can we say lack of center or origin now meaning becomes continually deferred meaning becomes continually deferred i hope you remember deference and all 
so he explains the possibility of free play through the concept of sentiment uh, supplementality supplementality is what something that replaces the lack in others okay it is because of this free play that you can bring in everything what can uh, you know substitute you know as a supplement so it is possible because of free play so this free play is permitted by the lack of center or origin so because there is no center the supplementality and free play is uh, allowed now meaning becomes continually deferred deferred meaning uh, changed uh, delayed you know i hope you remember deferring differing and deferring so deferring meaning meaning becomes continually deferred meaning delayed you know you look up one word in the dictionary you get another word and you look up that word in the dictionary you get many other synonyms so the meaning keeps on becoming delayed or deferred so that is one conclusion that derrida reaches uh, so actually we have not uh, completed the essay we'll need one more class to complete the essay now the a few more points just to wind up the essay we have uh, so i think i'll start stop today's class with this point this concept of decentering Uh, so we have only gone through the basic context of the essay the uh, background of the essay where it was delivered and uh, the importance of the essay and we spoke of the content of the essay in which derrida is saying that there was an event or a rupture that took place uh, which uh, which was actually the post structuralist turn that is the deconstruction where structuralism was uh, criticized and he is arguing against this uh, western philosophy where uh, concept of uh, center where there is uh, there should be a fixed center for any structure and he is saying how center limits free play how center is not really the center center is not inside the structure i gave you the example of god and the center has to be outside the center to limit free play so simultaneously center is both inside and outside so the problem is center problem of the center is that it is exclude others so and also we spoke of the three major figures who were responsible for the rupture that is nietzsche freud heidegger these were philosophers who came before who who were in a way responsible for this uh, concept of deconstruction and then uh, we had this uh, concept of synchronic and diachronic study and uh, derrida's concept of decentering the importance of decentering how it has been taking place since world war 1 how this disillusionment and uh, people did not want the center and this concept of uh, decentering began and uh, he is saying how decentering or removal of the center can actually uh, you know give infinite possibility infinite meaning possibilities of meaning and meaning becomes deferred continually okay so thank you girls keep smiling good morning and assalamu alaikum girls so welcome to our second session of uh, derrida's essay structure sign and play in the discourse of human sciences so we'll be continuing with the various points of the essay and uh, we have already seen some basic concepts that are discussed in the essay now we have a few more points to deal with where uh, the derrida is uh, taking uh, the french anthropologist uh, claude levistros ideas and he is trying to argue against the uh, against those concepts so let's start so first we have nature versus culture that is one point that is highlighted by derrida 
Claude Lévi-Strauss had actually introduced this idea of uh, binaries. That is a very classic example. He devises two categories of binaries, nature and culture. According to Claude Lévi-Strauss, uh, who was a popular French anthropologist of the time, according to Lévi-Strauss, what it was that everything could be divided into either nature or culture. Nature, that is anything that is spontaneous, anything that is universal, that is common, that is very natural, that is, you know, uh, innate, you know, inborn in us, that is nature. Okay? And anything that is acquired, that we acquire through our culture, is cultural. Okay? So, these are the two aspects, nature and culture. Everything could be divided into either these two binaries. Very prominent classical binaries, nature and culture. Now, Derrida opposes this concept of uh, this uh, classical binary of the nature and culture with something called the scandal. That's a very important concept you have to remember. He opposes the binary nature versus culture with scandal. Now, what is scandal? To explain this concept of scandal, he gives you the idea of incest prohibition that is used, which is both universal as well as cultural. Now, what is incest? Now, incest, uh, with the idea of incest prohibition, incest is something that is, you know, uh, basically it means uh, unlawful sexual relationship, especially between uh, close relations or family members, etc. So, this kind of unlawful uh, sexual relations is what is meant by incest. So, this idea of incest prohibition, it is something very natural, it is something very universal, right? In whatever time uh, you take, in whatever era you take, in whatever age you uh, refer, you can find that incest has been uh, prohibited everywhere. It is something that was considered wrong, it was something that was prohibited, it was something that was very uh, evil at any time. So, in that sense, incest prohibition is something that is very universal, very natural, very common. So, it is comes under nature. But at the same time, there is something cultural about it too. For example, um, the example that we, uh, you know, Derrida gives in the essay here is that, uh, for example, he says the in different cultures, uh, for example, according to certain religions, some relations are considered actually lawful you know so uh, in some religions for example in the Muslim religion uh, marriage between uh, cousins is lawful at the same time in some religion such marriages are considered unlawful it is a part of incest it is considered incest it is considered uh, prohibited etc so sometimes such uh, relations such uh, concepts are universal at the same time it is cultural so with this derrida is giving an exam this is just an example that derrida gives and with this example he is opposing this uh, binary of nature versus culture that this opposition is not there derrida have always been against this binary opposition so uh, he is also opposing this nature versus culture concept by levi strauss now uh, moving on we have the bricolage and the bricolier now, uh, this is again taken from the French anthropologist Claude Lévi-Strauss essay, The Savage Mind. Okay, now in the essay by Claude Lévi-Strauss, the essay's name is The Savage Mind. 
uh, he gives the concept of uh, bricolage and bricolier bricolage is an act where you make use of anything that you have to create something that is what is a bricolage just remember like collage so like that bricolage okay now bricolier is a person who does that now bricolier is a person who uses the mean at his disposal any means at his disposal whatever tools he have whatever equipments he have he's using that in desired permutations in desired amount permutation meaning in amounts or combinations as he wishes to reach the end goal so his goal is to make something then he will use whatever he have whatever he has to make that okay that is what is a bricolier bricolier is a person who does bricolage okay now uh, levi strauss he places the binary opposition of a bricolier to that of an engineer an engineer is an example he gives and not an example is a opposition he gives it is a binary opposition of a bricolier now engineer is someone who builds structures that are coherent stable that have a fixed center and have an absolute truth value now uh, in western philosophy the engineer is always privileged engineer is always considered superior uh, you know in opposition to a bricolier now claude levi strauss he discusses bricolage not only as an intellectual exercise it's not only as making things but also as a mythopoetical activity that is in making of myth okay now uh, the example that uh, levi strauss gives is that a bricolier is a savage mind a bricolier is the savage mind who puts the pre-existing things together in new ways and makes do with whatever is at hand and makes whatever he can with those things now levistros points out that the science already in existence that is already some things are there but uh, you know you have a toothbrush but that toothbrush is used for brushing your teeth now a bricolier might use a toothbrush as a stand in which he can build something okay so he uses signs already in existence it can be used in language also that is what is meant by mythopoetical activity making of myth so uh, the signs that are already in existence and it is used for purposes that they are not actually meant for so the working of the bricolier is per parallel to the construction of mythological narratives when you are creating mythological narratives it's like a work of a bricolier whereas the engineer is the scientific mind that is what is west, according to the western philosophy the western scientific mind is the engineer the mythological mind is the bricolier that is the uh, difference you know engineer is very specific scientific uh, mind uh, a very true craftsman he deals with everything that is very correct taking into account the availability of materials creating new tools making everything very perfect he has a particular structure an engineer might have a particular center an engineer might have a particular focus so the engineer is the scientific the western scientific mind whereas the bricolier is the mythological narratives creating of mythologies okay so drawing a parallel levistros argues that mythology functions more like a bricolier whereas modern western science works more like an engineer so that is one difference uh, example that he gives for that bricolier is like the mythology creates mythology whereas the engineer creates modern western science now what did derrida have to say about that now derrida in his essay structure sign and play he actually criticizes 
Derrida has always been criticizing others. So Derrida actually criticizes Lévi-Strauss concept. He says that Bricolier doesn't actually care about the purity or stability or truth of his system he or she uses. Bricolier does not imagine that, uh, does not look like, you know, if I uh, look at this concept and if I think of this myth or if I take this story and uh, mix this with this story, will it be correct? Will it be uh, beautiful? Will it be, uh, 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 you know, uh, exact? But rather he uses wa what's available to get the job done. That is what a bricolier does. So according to Derrida, since every discourse that borrows its ideas from the sites, coherent or not, is a bricolier, and an engineer too creates structure and discourse, limited or not, from within itself. So actually when you think of it, uh, engineer or the western scientific mind, they actually uses things uh, around them, right? Concepts and uh, ideas around them to create this uh, scientific structure or to create this um, idea, scientific idea or whatever it is. So every discourse is borrowed from here and there. So in that sense, engineer is also a bricolier. So again here Derrida is diluting or uh, removing this opposition. So the opposition between a bricolier and an engineer which was proposed by Lévi-Strauss is diluted here and the engineer becomes a myth created by bricolier. Okay, and Derrida, Derrida gives an example that the critical language is a bricolage. Actually, the criticisms that we have, the critical languages that we have, it is a bricolage because we use the tools that are available. We use literature that is available to critically analyze it. Edward Said had already taken this book from the library, Mansfield Park, by written by Jane Austen, and he had critically analyzed it. So, what... Uh, Edward Said is doing there, he is a bricolier who is creating things from something that's already there. Okay, so whatever he got in his hand, he's doing something with that. So that is what is critical language is actually a bricolage and we are using what we have. Now coming to the conclusion of the essay, so these were some of the important points that Derrida speaks of in his essay. Just remember it a few point by point. Uh, uh, and uh, coming to the conclusion, we have uh, Derrida who observes that there are two ways to interpret structure, sign and play. Okay, two ways are there to interpret structure, sign and play. Uh, one aims to decipher an absolute to truth. So, one way to interpret structure, sign and play is by deciphering absolute truth. That is making use of the uh, structure as it is. And the other one affirms play. That is other uh, method that affirms play meaning that affirms free play. That is without the center. So one method is by having the center using this absolute truth means the absolute center. Uh, and uh, then avoiding play, avoiding this free play. That is what is limited, what is very traditional way. That is the very traditional way that we use. Now, the other second method is by affirming play. Affirming meaning supporting play, supporting free play. Free play meaning without center. That is the modern concept. Okay. So, either you can interpret a structure in the traditional way or you can use it by the modern concept. Now, the first way, first way that is the way in which the center was dominant and free play was limited. That way was dominant throughout human history. 
देखिए दैट इज द मेथड दैट वी हैव बीन यूजिंग इन हिस्ट्री और थ्रू आउट ह्यूमन हिस्ट्री एंड द सेकेंड वे इज ओनली एमर्जिंग नाउ दैट इज डीकंस्ट्रक्शन ओके सो द सेकेंड वे इज विच proposed not actually deconstruction deconstruction is just a philosophy the second method is is one in which without the center you have limit, uh, unlimited free play infinite free play for derrida for derrida play must supersede the alternatives of presence and absence and hence there is no need to be concerned with the absence of center or of origin so actually for derrida uh, this uh, play that is free play it must supersede the alternate you don't have to think whether there is a center whether there is a structure whether there is some truth in it whether there is some reality in it you have to create a discourse that is all that matters so there is no need to be concerned with whether it is right or wrong okay basically that is what he is trying to say that uh, limit limitless play infinite play should be Uh, what can we say advocated or uh, inspired there is no need to be concerned with the absence of center or origin you don't have to be concerned oh we don't have a center now so it's very wrong what we are doing there is no one to uh, control us so it's very uh, no it's very wrong what we are doing so there is no need of to think that we need a center a center is something that it could be there that cannot be there so it's not important play is possible if we can forego our need for truth that is we always have this need for you know always adhering to a center of adhering to this concept or following this concept a center so play is possible if we can forego forego means uh, avoid this center it is possible it's uh, it is possible then to have a philosophy without concepts without orientation without coherence so we can have something very pure okay so derrida is saying if there is no center if there is no one to control you you can have limitless opportunities you can have limitless expressions you can have limitless thoughts you can have limitless imaginations so everything will be limitless so it is possible to have a philosophy without any concept or without any orientation or without any center without coherence so this limitless uh, concept is what is promoted by derrida in his essay so this is all what we have in the essay so i hope it was clear um the last video uh, do watch that video after watching the second video so together you will get an, a relatively good idea about what the essay is saying anyway in this class we spoke about nature versus culture how levistro's ideas of binaries were uh, you know criticized or opposed by derrida by saying this concept of scandal and he gave the example of incest prohibition sexual relationship between close relations or uh, you know prohibited sexual acts this is what was prohibited and it be, it is both universal as well as cultural so it is something that uh, you know dilutes this opposition between nature and culture and then we have a uh, bricolage and bricolier which is actually taken terminology is taken from the french anthropologist claude levi-strauss who uh, promoted it in his uh, book the savage mind where bricolier is the savage mind the engineer is the scientific mind okay uh then uh, derrida in the next slide we spoke of derrida how he criticizes this concept and he says actually the engineer is a myth created by bricolier and again this opposition is also diluted and derrida gives the example that critical language is actually uh, bricolage 
because we are forced to use the tools that are available and then coming to the conclusion we are seeing how Derrida is saying you can either uh, you know take this absolute truth or follow the center and avoid limitless play or you can uh, follow where the structure where there is no structure there is no center and there is limitless play okay so thank you girls